You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's wonderful to be with you on this Sunday morning. If you haven't already done so, grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 2. Um, and if you would like, these are free for you. Mark journals, they're on the back table here. Um, you can pick either one of the same, except this one has a little bit more like artistic flair to it. Uh, this is more text, but they both have uh, the text of Mark, the whole book of Mark, with note-taking opportunities on the opposing pages. And uh, feel free to grab a rubber band to hold it together in your bag or as you throw it in your car. But they're back there. Grab some right now uh, to follow along. Jot down some ahas, some questions. Um, to write certain emojis around certain things. Um, that's what I do when I read. Um, try to find any way possible to, to engage in the text. But uh, this is our, our 10th week now in our study through the Gospel of St. Mark, um, a series that we've entitled Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah. We've committed ourselves to this book to work diligently through it verse by verse, passage by passage, sometimes even word by word, in order for us to better see Jesus, to ask him to increase our faith in him, and so that we obey, and so that we follow him more sincerely and closely. As a way of reminder, uh, Mark was not a disciple, but he was discipled by the original disciples. He's often referred to as John Mark, as his more complete name, and uh, he's, it's believed that this this gospel account, the gospel of Mark, is the oldest of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is dated around 56 to 59 um, AD, about 10, 11 years prior to Rome coming into Jerusalem and taking it over under the, the emperor Nero. Um, and he wrote it from Rome for non-Jews to know that they can be invited into the people of God, into the family of God, to share in the covenants of promise with the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. Um, so I hope that you're encouraged at this morning through our time in Scripture, as always, and that you believe a little bit more from our time today that you are welcome into the covenant family of God if you simply see and believe Jesus. All these things in the gospel can be true for you too. Uh, so some context for where we are at the end of chapter 2. We're going to pick up chapter 3 next week, obviously. We're finishing up our time in chapter 2. So here's, where, here's kind of what's happened so far. Jesus comes onto the scene. He's baptized. He calls some disciples, two sets of brothers right out of the gate, Peter and Andrew, James and John. He goes and teaches in synagogues. He heals sick people and frees those who were tormented. As a result of his miracles, as a result of his radical claims that he's God, that, that he's the Messiah, pretty radical claim. Uh, his reputation, his, his fame spreads all throughout the Middle East. Um, this is aided by him going synagogue to synagogue, teaching along with his at least four disciples where they teach and preach and heal and send demons away. Then he, he picks up Levi or Matthew, um, uh, his fifth disciple at this point. So he's got Peter and Andrew, James, John, and now Matthew or Levi and the disciples are asked, these five disciples who are new to following Jesus, right? This is, this is a new thing. They're following him as their rabbi. Um, these uh, this people from the crowd, maybe some Pharisees, they asked these five disciples, 
This is what we looked at last week. Why don't y'all fast like John the Baptist's disciples fast? Why don't y'all fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Why is it that you're following a rabbi who doesn't make you fast like we're forced to fast? The disciples are asked that. Well, Jesus answers it for them. And he answers it in an odd way, but a brilliant way. He uses their question about fasting to address what they see as their justification, to address what they view as what makes them right before God, right? To where they can be reconciled with God. He uses that to point out how religious performance is nothing to bring you justify, justification before God. But they believe that through consistent religious practices like fasting, that if you do it right enough and often enough, that you could be made right before God. But Jesus says essentially that hoping and believing in your performance, as religious and perfect as, as you may believe it is, it is not sufficient to make you righteous before the living, just, and holy God. And now, of course, each one of us, we drift every day to pointing to many other things that are far more trivial than fasting for our justification. And this is what we looked at last Sunday. But the point is that only faith in Jesus Christ alone can you be made righteous before God and justified, made right, made good enough before the Father in heaven. And so right after teaching that, we come to our text for this morning. So that's where we're landing. Here we go. And this is God's word before us. God, would you speak to us through your word? Help us leave differently, having engaged with your living word that is active, that changes us. Open our minds that we would understand and know and open our hearts that we would experience. Of course, open our eyes so that we can see you. That changes everything. Open our ears to hear your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Verse 23, one Sabbath random, not even one in particular. It wasn't the one right after this fasting ordeal. But one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields with his disciples. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. They were hungry. As they walked, they casually just leaned over just a touch to grab the, the tip of the, the piece of the wild grain, all right, right at their thigh level. They didn't even have to bend over for it. It was just kind of right there. They grabbed it and they ate. They weren't laboring all day. I doubt they broke a sweat from working. They didn't have their rakes or shovels. They weren't harvesting crops. They were walking and just casually took a bite of a head of grain. And the Pharisees, and I know often they set Jesus up by asking questions to catch him. And things haven't gotten that volatile yet with the Pharisees. So I see, as we study Mark up to this point, this isn't something to try to catch Jesus. I see this personally as I engage with this text. This is a sincere question. They're not, they're not coming from a proud disposition. There's, they're wanting to know, kind of like fasting. I believe it was the same sort of question. Why don't they fast? He says, the, disciples, the Pharisees were, were looking at Jesus saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Like, how are they, how are they doing this? Well, well, this addresses their man-made laws, the Pharisees' strict rules, because they were, man, they were so consumed with just their, their laws upon laws and the strict compliance to more than just the law of God, 
but to laws upon those laws that they created and formed their traditions, okay? And so by doing so, they've totally missed the heart of the original law. Now, perhaps they're still hung up on the teaching on, on fasting and their strict kind of compliance to fasting for their justification, or Mark, the author here, right, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at work in him and through him as he's writing this, maybe Mark is listing this as once upon a Sabbath, right behind the fasting question as a way of giving us another example on how Jesus points out how the religious struggle with such a doctrine, but also how Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us. You know, back in Leviticus 19, we learned that the edges of the field, so the edges were not normally harvested by the property owner. They were to remain for the poor and the hungry, the orphan, the widow, the needy, the traveler, the, the strangers. They were to gather food for themselves and their families, right? This law saying, leave the margins for others, is a beautiful picture of the compassion of God for outsiders in the Old Testament. And it's significant to know that as you read the Old Testament. Sabbath here is referring to the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, given to Moses. And you can read about this in Exodus 23, particularly in verse 12. And it reads like this. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest so that you and your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien or traveler, stranger, may be refreshed. Sabbath, rest, refreshment. Okay, so the Pharisees took this law and they made several other rules in order to enforce this law. And then they made other rules to enforce those rules and then other rules to enforce those rules to the point where the Pharisees officially classified plucking of grain, just a, just a pluck, that's called reaping. And reaping is labor. That's not okay on the Sabbath. You see, they had laws enforcing laws that enforce laws that enforce laws for so many of the original laws that God gave to us. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to end with my favorite one. All right, the first one from Exodus 16, 29. The law said that you can't travel on the Sabbath, okay? Here's what it says from Scripture. The Lord, and this is when they were collecting manna, so it's in context to a particular time. It's not saying this is how it shall forever always be, by the way. But Exodus 16, 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, in his place, and let no one go out of his place or travel on the seventh day. Okay, cool. The Pharisees see this and they ask, well, what's meant by remain in his place? What's, what's meant by traveling? How do we define this? Well, to answer this, they developed the concept of what's known as a Sabbath day's journey, which is roughly a thousand yards. So in order to not travel, you could go up to, but not over 1,000 yards from your home. You could walk that far on the Sabbath, a thousand and one yards, that's a sin. You're breaking the Sabbath. That's a no-no. But they came up with this one. If you've got a rope that was tied across the end of a particular street, so long as that rope had its starting point on your property, the whole street would be your dwelling place 
And so then if that's the case, you could walk a thousand yards after the end of that rope. So as long as you have a long rope, you're good. Or if you got real crafty, you could deliver food. I'm not making this up. You could deliver food at a home on a Friday night. And then the next day you could walk to that home as long as it's under a thousand yards away, you could eat your meal. If you eat your meal in that home, you can technically establish this as your new home because you ate a meal there. So then you could go a thousand yards beyond that home. So if you're clever and enjoyed math enough, you could walk halfway across Jerusalem without ever breaking the Sabbath, right? Another example of their layered laws, a law prohibited the carrying of a burden on Sabbath. And it was given. Prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17, 21 through 27, a lot. But just 21 says this, bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Ah, what's a burden? Was a piece of clothing a burden? Two pieces of clothing a burden? At what point does carrying coats or clothing become carrying laundry? Can I do laundry on a Sabbath? Well, the answer that the Pharisees provided that if it was worn as clothing, it was not considered a burden. But if you carried it in your hand, it was called a burden. So in your home on the Sabbath, you could not walk from your bedroom to your living room holding your jacket just in case the fan got you made you cold. You had to wear, just in case so that you wouldn't break the law, you would put the, the, the hoodie on in your bedroom, walk to your living room, and then take it off. That's not breaking the Sabbath. But so help me, if you carry it just in your hand... That's a no-no. You can't do that. That's breaking the Sabbath law. And my final example, my favorite one of their layered law, is they, the, the law that prohibited work on the Sabbath. The same sort of logic worked this way. This is, this is almost fun, but it's, terrible. it's tragic, really, how much hope they put into this. A man is out walking on a Sabbath. He spits. Is that work? Answer from the Pharisees. Well, that depends. Really? I can't even spit? Well, it depends on what happens to the spit. If it goes into the dirt on the path and makes a slight furrow, that's considered plowing, and plowing is work. I'm not kidding. If it hits a rock, no work is done. So under this system, being a devout Jew seemed in part on where you spit and if you were accurate in landing it on a rock or not. Now, can you imagine living or trying to live under this burden? In all, the Pharisees had over 39 categories of work and what was considered reaping that they had created to try to stay away from ever breaking the Sabbath commandment. Friend, this is the, the, the heaviness of the yoke of legalism, moralism, comparison, and religious performance that the Pharisees carried and that so many, particularly in the Southeast U.S., that we carry. And they wanted others to carry, and often churches in the Southeast want other people to carry these burdens too. But friend, this is the heaviness that Jesus, by wonderful grace, wanted them to rid themselves of, and us too, to take on the lightness of his yoke that he says is easy. Because Jesus has fully completed the heavy lifting by obeying the law, all of it, perfectly for us and as us. But here, Jesus and his disciples, they're not breaking any Sabbath laws, but they're breaking their religious traditions, those layered laws. 
And in doing so, as he addresses this, he's, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of how they've misinterpreted and poorly applied the law of the Sabbath. But Jesus is, is the writer of Scripture. Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the lawgiver. And so Jesus is the one, as the Messiah, who can interpret the law, its meaning, its spirit, and the spirit behind the rule. And as he speaks this truth, he's emphasizing his divine authority as Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and even the fulfillment of the law. You see, Jesus's laws are light and easy for those who believe him because they're good for us. But the Pharisees, the laws of the Pharisees were so burdensome, the the law of religious performance, legalism, comparison, and moralism. And Jesus, he says there that the Pharisees' own laws would not even hold up to the Old Testament, and they think it does. And he points this out by using an Old Testament example, right? So, So look in verse 25. And he says to them, and these four words really bother people like the Pharisees, like know-it-alls are bothered by this, okay? Oh, have you not read? Of course they have. They've given their life to understanding the Old Testament. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were along with him? How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abitar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which, by the way, is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and how he also gave it to those who were with him. They weren't priests, and David, he wasn't a priest. And then he says to them, as they're kind of sitting back thinking, whoa, I think you might be right, but what do we do with this? He says, the Sabbath was made for man as a gift, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, this is first referencing 1 Samuel 21. And everyone in the audience at this point would have been very familiar with their boy, King David. Like, they, they, loved, they loved him, admired him. David had been anointed king over Israel, but not recognized yet by Saul. And Saul hated him and wanted to kill him. You might remember this. And so David had to flee to a priestly town of Nob in order to save his life. Well, when he got there, he was hungry, he was needy, and everyone else that was there with him were hungry and needy as well. And they asked the priest for food. Like, we're hungry, can you help us? And all Ahimelech had was consecrated bread. Bread that had been devoted to the Lord in his presence before the, the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle of God. The loaves were baked and placed every Sabbath morning as an offering there in the tabernacle. The bread was not to be eaten. According to Leviticus 24, the bread was only to be eaten by priests and in a certain way, according to Leviticus 24. But as Ahimelech sees David and his men very hungry, Ahimelech, he generously and graciously gave this devoted bread, this very special bread to David and his men. He didn't have anything else. And so then explaining this, unpacking this analogy, Jesus follows it up by saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But here's, here's what Jesus is hoping they understand. The laws governing the Sabbath were for our benefit, not to hurt us or make life more difficult. Sabbath was a gift and meant to be a gift, not a grief that you had to endure. 
And, and by beginning his point with the words, have you not read, he wasn't implying that they were unfamiliar. He was implying they, they're missing the significance of that Old Testament passage. If they understood it, if they understood what David was going through and how the priests offered this food to David, even though it was contrary to, to the law, they would have known that their personal approach to the Sabbath was fundamentally wrong since they were not able to explain how David could do that and still remain right in the eyes of God. Because if David was right, then his need in that moment superseded the normal rules that would have restricted the consecrated bread going to anyone but a priest. The Pharisees should have known that the law was given to help people like David right, and not hinder them. And so the Sabbath here points to Jesus and the rest that Jesus gives from the impossible task of trying to earn our salvation by works, trying to find our justification in something other than Jesus by doing enough good things, not doing the bad things, and keeping up enough with man-made rules and regulations. And then he concludes it in verse 28, so the man, son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is challenging the Sabbath law itself. He's challenging the Pharisees' interpretation or misapplication of it. But as Jesus is there as the Messiah, he authoritatively interprets every aspect of the law and he gives the rule and the spirit behind the rule. He points out the Pharisees' blindness to the actual intent and heart of Sabbath, which is rest, well-being, and renewal. But the irony of all this is that these Pharisees and many others would work and toil. They would work their fingers down to the bones in order to not work on the Sabbath. It's so ironic. They're missing the point of the Sabbath, but even worse, they're missing Jesus. You see, the point of the Sabbath law was for us to rest. And today, several of us are more anxious. Today, in, in our real life, on this very Sunday, we're more anxious than we need to be because we never Sabbath. Sabbath is contrary to our production, to our performance, to us getting things done, our to-do list. Each of our seven days look like all the others. They're full of toil. They're, they're full of connectivity. They're slammed with activity. We're posting on social media. We're texting people like crazy. We're watching videos. And friend, we just need rest. We just need rest. I mean, it's still a command to Sabbath. And it's far good. And it's not meant to be grief. It's meant to be a gift. 11 years ago, I was able to spend some personal time with uh, Pastor Rick Warren. And I'm not interested in critiquing his theology, if that's your bent, or really anyone else's theology except my own and I've got my hands full with my own problems and questions theologically. But two things that I remember well from that time with, with Pastor Rick. One, he asked if he could take a picture with me. I was like, sure, I was going to ask you, but cool, yeah. Um, and he got my name down and recorded which picture number it was. This is really all, right about when iPhones were becoming a thing, right? So he had like a real camera. Um, that took like two AA batteries, really ancient. Um, and uh, he took this picture and he says, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to put you on my Tuesday while I'm going to pray for you every Tuesday. Um, that really made an impact on me. Um, two, he said that in order to sustain your, yourself in ministry, 
you're to do four things. And I encourage you to do this because I think this is how you sustain life in general. And this has been my practice for 11 years now because of what he said. He said, you've got to play daily. Play daily. You've got a Sabbath weekly. You need to retreat monthly and disappear annually. He said, that's how you stay fresh. That's a, that's a rhythm of Sabbath. Playing daily, he said, was gardening. He just loved gardening. Pulling weeds, making things happen. Beautiful things, right? Um, but just finding something that's fun and do that every day. And then Sabbath. That's a 24-hour period that looks different than the other hours of your six days. And then his retreat monthly wasn't necessarily going away from the home. It's just a, for a 36-hour period, it looked different than everything else. And so it's like, as Sabbath is to a week, a retreat is as a Sabbath for a month, right? And then disappear um, annually, which is a sabbatical or a vacation. And by the way, breaking news, your vacation counts even if you don't record it on Instagram. You don't have to like post and post and post. That's missing the whole spirit of a vacation. You've got time to do that later. Refresh yourself. And I encourage you to implement these four things. It'll keep you fresh. It'll give you a taste of what Sabbath is. But getting, getting here back to the text and, and wrapping this up for us, Jesus makes a huge claim, huge claim, where he essentially says that he's greater than the Sabbath. And he does actually say that in Matthew, I believe. The law states to keep the Sabbath day holy and to rest and trust God. The Pharisees take that and they create all sorts of laws and rules so that they, they can work real hard at completing those rules, meeting the requirements, hold other people to it. And when they mess up, which is kind of what they want, they feel more righteous. They feel more accepted. They feel like they've gained a higher amount of approval, though they've only increased their self-righteousness, which doesn't count for anything. And Jesus presses them on their man-made rules and presses them on missing the heart of the law, the spirit of the rule that was there to begin with. The command to rest on the Sabbath was a means of enjoying God and experiencing a lighter day, not a heavier, more difficult, laborious day. They, they totally miss the concept of Sabbath, and they create something radically different than God created. I mean, the purpose of the Sabbath was to show mercy to people and their animals. It was an act of mercy. It was a gift of mercy to let us rest, mandating regular rest from hard labor. And if its strict observance somehow made people hungry and more miserable, like not letting them have food, then the purpose of the law had been violated already, though you think you're keeping it. Jesus teaches this to them. But then he declares that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the rest that he is the Sabbath, that he's the rest that the Sabbath was pointing to, that he's greater than the Sabbath, that in him and him alone, the human heart can experience true rest. This is the message and work of the Messiah, that he is the Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, why would Jesus say these things? Why, when, like, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? He could have responded in, in dozens of different ways. Why does he bring up David? Why does he talk about the spirit of the law? Why does he say he's the Lord of the Sabbath? 
Why does he say it's created for man, not man created for Sabbath? Why is he speaking this way? Well, because it's true. And because he knows that we need to hear these words. He knows that we need to hear Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. All right? What difference does that make today? Plucking grain, not plucking grain, the rules. How, how on earth is, is this, Mark chapter 2, applicable to today in the here and now? Well, have you ever longed for something better? Ever? Probably. Has a deep-seated frustration left you dreaming that things would improve in any part of your life? Probably. As we plow the soil that's been hardened under the curse of sin, we all desire a good and sweet fruit that's easy to have without sweat, toil, hard labor, and increased burdens. We all want something better. We desire relief. We love relaxation. We desire rest. We desire Sabbath, though we rarely call it that because we don't see it as that. But can you admit that every day, somehow, in some way, every day we live, each day reminds us of our need for rest, a longing for something better, a longing for Sabbath, for contentment, for peace, for a certain soul comfort that we're missing in this life of toil and anxiety. In light of my week personally, I And I could not wait to preach this text this morning because I need to hear, Jeremy, Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. So much temptation, so much giving into the drift, so much failure in our holiness, so much sadness, so much loss, floodings and deaths, rescues and evacuations and war and deaths, continued illnesses and deaths, death of a, of a friend and beloved Nashville pastor and his daughter in a car wreck this week. Many of you, based on what you've been going through lately, you need to be reminded that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. In light of the volatile week that we've all lived, we're all looking for Sabbath. We're all looking for rest. We're looking for it. And I believe that part of the reason why Jesus says this is because Jesus knows that it's intrinsically woven into every fabric of every human being, a desire to Sabbath, to find soul rest, to find Re, uh, reconciliation with God, where, which is where that rest comes from. It's at the very heart cry of every human soul to be restored back to its creator and there find rest. Friend, here today, Jesus is offering us, he's promising us two things that each one of us in this room desires with every piece of who we are. One is we're wanting to find rest within We want to find rest within. And two, every one of us, though we might not realize it, we all want reconciliation with God. And both are found, perfectly found, and only found in and through Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. Now, of course, there are plenty of counterfeits to what Jesus alone offers and that he promises. It's the great enemy's plan to throw counterfeits and false saviors at us all the time. We're so gullible. Our souls are so gullible. We jump at anything that looks hopeful. We jump at anything that looks like Sabbath. 
But the truly wise, the truly happy heart is the one that sees and prizes Jesus as better than or more authentic than any counterfeit that the enemy pushes our way. I mean, other objects, other adventures, other experiences, they call out to us every day. Sabbath can be found over here. Come look over here for Sabbath. We can give it to you. It's a lie. Do not believe it. It's wrong. It's deceiving you and it's tricking you. Do not believe it. They may offer a very cheap and quick thrill, but nothing lasting, nothing that brings life, nothing that brings freedom, nothing that brings light, nothing that can ever give rest, can never provide Sabbath. And we see these counterfeits. We see them, we run to them, we hope in them, we go to them, and we believe them. And instead of Sabbath, you know what we get? They promise Sabbath, but instead we get more work, not less. There's more weight, there's more burden, not ease. No hope, just regret. And we run after Sabbath by exploring our sexuality or re-identifying our gender. That doesn't provide us with Sabbath. We jump into gossip, the knowledge of more things that have nothing to do with us. It's none of our business. But that doesn't provide us with Sabbath. We go into continuing our education, expanding our knowledge and understanding in certain things. But that ultimately doesn't give us Sabbath. We pursue good health, the body of our dreams. That doesn't provide us with Sabbath. We resort to greed and storing up money, gathering riches and wealth and big Uh, retirement funds and saving accounts, that doesn't provide us with Sabbath. We want an expanded social media platform. We want to be noticed. What if we ever get famous? But that won't give us Sabbath. So we resort to anger and we want to leverage an unhealthy form of anger to produce fear and guilt in order to control and manipulate other people. That doesn't give us Sabbath. We add a pride and a swagger and arrogance to the way of our life. That doesn't provide us with Sabbath. You see other people enjoying something, you want it so that you can enjoy the same thing in the same way. You get it. You can't get Sabbath there either. You run to food. You run to fullness. You run to flavor. That doesn't provide you with Sabbath. You satisfy your lust. You give in to your fantasies. That doesn't provide you with Sabbath. You pursue slothfulness, being lazy, scrolling Netflix for hours and on your smartphone devices. That doesn't provide you a Sabbath. You make home improvements. You plan and go on the vacation of your dreams. That doesn't provide you with Sabbath. You want your kids to perform excellently in the classroom, on the sports field, and have great manners in front of others. But you know what? That doesn't provide you with Sabbath. You run deep into addictions but that doesn't provide you with Sabbath. And friend, there's a thousand other ways we look for Sabbath, and yet we come away empty-handed. Even worse, we come away overworked and empty-hearted. And all of these have called out to us. If we're honest, most of these have called out to us this week, telling us they provide Sabbath. Friend, they're all wrong. We all in some way are longing for and searching for Jesus. And he's the only one that freely and entirely offers to us Sabbath. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is Lord of the Sabbath. And here's what he says. Come to me, 
all you who labor and work and are burdened, overwhelmed, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's strange is that all those other counterfeits that we just went through tell us the same thing. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. But they lie. They cannot. Only Jesus can. And here's how he has done it. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. The only time in scripture where Jesus describes himself. And the two words he uses, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. He didn't say I'm powerful and mighty. I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find Sabbath for my yoke is easy. There's no trick and my burden is light. Only Jesus can say this and deliver on it. Many other things can say it, but they cannot deliver. Do not be tricked. True Sabbath is soul rest. It's the place where your identity is settled. That's part of what it means. True Sabbath isn't merely resting physically, though that's, that's an aspect of it for sure. But true Sabbath is finding your God-given purpose and discovering the reason why you get up every day. True Sabbath is found only in and through God, and you get God back through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. But you know, there was a time in our life, when, or in, in humanity's history, when we did not need Sabbath for soul rest. We simply needed it for physical rest. There was no need to find Sabbath in order to find and rediscover purpose and identity. We knew our purpose. We were constantly living in the fullness of soul rest. We were sure of our identity. We were at perfect peace with God. But then as Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and the curse, death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Friend, that's the source of our sorrow. This is the root of all our pain, our difficulty, our overworked souls. This is where every questioning of do I matter? Am I worth anything? Am I a waste of space? All these, am I ever going to get it together? All these questions find their home right here. Every disappointment can be found right here in the garden when we went after what we thought was best and stopped trusting the Lord in the way that he asked us to. This is where our need for Sabbath comes from. We feel this need for something more, for Sabbath, and we look everywhere for it. We've got to have it. We were created to experience it. It's part of what's been affected by the fall. And so we're always looking for that fulfillment of Sabbath within. And the Bible teaches us that there's literally nothing that we can ever do to have it. There's nothing that we can ever do to get Sabbath. But there is something God can do for us if he would, which would be crazy, But the good news of the gospel is he has. The gospel is that Jesus took on our work so that we could enjoy his rest. Jesus works, we get the paycheck and the vacation and the rest. He dies, we live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, will have eternal rest. For God did not send his son into the world to make the world work more, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him and have rest. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, is not worked more, but has rest. 
For it was for our sake that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ Jesus we might become good enough, justified, the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange, my friend. Christ's righteousness exchanged for our sin. Our sin exchanged for Christ's righteousness. He works, we rest. You see, we needed to be entirely different. We needed to be made new. There was no way that our bodies could experience Sabbath the way that we were intended to would God not act for us on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel says that he has, that he worked for us. If we would just by simple childlike faith and admiration look to Jesus and believe him, the spirit comes within us, causes us to be reborn, and then right then and there we begin to experience Sabbath, what we've been looking for. Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And we receive the Sabbath not because Jesus rested though that's what he deserved to do. But instead, he works, and he works hard for us, even to death, as us and for us. I want you to remember this. Christian, when you hear those voices coming at you, you can find rest over here. Sabbath is over here. Don't believe it. You run to this, this only, and never forget that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. This is your hope. Believe it and pray for faith to believe it. And this is what we remember now together as we share in communion. Christian, during this time, acknowledge the saving work of Jesus. This is what this moment's for. We're acknowledging the hard work of Jesus on our behalf so that we can have rest. We've got bread and wine and juice. The bread is symbolic of his life that he lived in perfection as us. The red liquid, the juice, or the wine is symbolic of his death that he died for us. Be reminded that he's done all that's necessary, all the work, all the heavy lifting in order for us to be reconciled back to God. So as you take and dip and taste, remind yourself of the truths of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, add your special blessing to this time. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, being on this time of communion, and remain with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take. We've got servers on either side. We've got a self-serve station in the back. You take the bread and dip it into the juice or the wine, remembering the hard work of Jesus so that you could find rest and Sabbath. You can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.